Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. So our series today, or our series closes out today, and our sermon today is learning to be holy. I'm going to give you a little bit of a background on the church that we are and the church movement we are a part of. North Main Street Church of God is affiliated with the Church of God out of Anderson, Indiana. Many of you may not know that. I don't talk about that often. I am ordained in the Church of God. I'm technically a third-generation Church of God kid. Um, my family grew up in central Kentucky, and uh, that's where my roots are. And the small town of Stanford, there's a small church of God that's still there that my grandmother went to. My mom, who's here, grew up in. And then as I grew up at age 11 on, uh, we were at the Danville First Church of God in Kentucky, and that's where my mom is, is a member today. And, and um, the movement of the Church of God is a part of what we would call the holiness movement. The holiness movement actually started just shortly after the Protestant Reformation under Martin Luther. I know you probably didn't come for a church history lesson today, but I'm going to give you a little brief part of this because it helps to lead into where I'm going today. What the holiness movement was about, and still is in many respects, is about living lives of holiness unto the Lord. The Church of God found its roots in in the late 1800s by a band of about five different evangelists. Three of them were women, two of them were men, and this is where we get a bad rap because you like, you let women be preachers? Yes, we do. We are the mo- one of the most conservative uh, groups of people you'll ever meet, politically and otherwise, but we do have women preachers and we have biblical reasoning for that. We just don't willy-nilly throw caution to the wind. That aside, started with five evangelists. They did not intend to start a denomination, which is why we don't consider ourselves one. We are a movement of churches who coalesce around core principles of biblical doctrine. We are a non-creedal people, which means we don't speak creeds. Some of you, this is a very high-churched area here. Catholicism, Lutheranism, you know, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creeds, those kind of creeds. Some of you come from those traditions. Well, Church of God is a non-creedal people. We have this from the very early onset of our movement that we have no creed but the Bible. That's one of the statements we have. No creed but the Bible. So where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible's silent, we infer in those gray areas based on what we have in the black and whites, what God would have us do, okay? So no creed but the Bible. We are part of the holiness movement. The two tenets of the Church of God movement, Anderson, Indiana, which we're a part of, was holiness and unity. Two tenets, very simple. We believe that God desired for his church, the body of Christ, to be unified, not divided, not broken, We believe that God desired for his people to be holy and set apart. 
to reflect his glory and not our own. And so when we talk about holiness, when I talk about holiness today, that is the perspective I'm going to come from. And I want you to understand holiness, yes, is a means of perfection, but holiness doesn't necessarily mean that you are perfect. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. So where am I going with this and how does this tie into the Israelites' wilderness wanderings? Well, right before they enter the land, Moses is giving some final instructions. Moses has now been um, punished. He's not allowed to enter the promised land. Joshua, who was an assistant to Moses, will now be the one to lead them into the promised land. He's been given the mantle, if, if you will, to, and the authority to step into Moses' position so that he then can lead them into the promised land. But in these final instructions, Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 18, starting with verse 9, these words of caution. I'm reading from the New Living Translation today. You may have a different version, but if you get confused reading along with different verbiage, you can look on the screen. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, be very careful not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. So they're entering this land. It is not vacant. It is not wild and overgrown. It's actually inhabited by many different tribal nations. The Philistines, multiple different Canaanite traditions and tribes, some names that you wouldn't be able to even pronounce if you read them in the Old Testament. And so they're going into a land that is already occupied. But see, they knew this because 40 years earlier, when four or 12 different spies entered the land for the 40 days, guess what they found? They found the land was awesome. It was abundant with fruit and vegetation. They called it a land flowing with milk and honey. But they said the people that inhabited the space there were huge. They looked like giants. As a matter of fact, they say in their own language that we looked like grasshoppers compared to them, and they thought we looked just as small as well. Okay? So this next generation... The older generation has died off. Now those that had been 20 years of age or younger are now older in their 60s or so, 50s, 60s, 70s. And they've now had kids and grandkids and they're getting ready to enter the promised land. And it says, Paul, or Moses says, don't imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. For example... Never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering. We read that through a 21st century lens and we think, we would never do that. But as a culture, we've murdered 60 million babies in the womb. You tell me who's worse? A culture that, a culture that murders tens of thousands or tens of millions. Don't imitate the customs of these nations. Don't offer your 
son or daughter is a burnt offering. And do not let the people practice fortune telling or, or use sorcery or interpret omens or engage in witchcraft or cast spells or function as mediums or psychics or call forth the spirits of the dead. Some of your Bibles may say necromancers. Have you heard of that term before? These are the ones who sit around tables conjuring up the dead in a seance with a crystal ball or some other thing in the middle. It seems really outdated and things that are just in the movies, but let me be honest with you today, witchcraft is more of a problem in our world than it ever has been in any time of the past. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. It's because of the other nations, excuse me, it's because the other nations have done these detestable things that the Lord, your God, will drive them out ahead of you. We think when we read Joshua and the conquest narratives where they come in and they wipe out cities, we think, oh, that is a horrible thing for God to allow the people to do. But do you realize, though it's not written in the Bible or in our history books, that the people in these places were doing such horrific and detestable things. They were mutilating themselves, killing their own people, their own children. Life was of no value to them at all. Think of Noah's time on a smaller scale in these tribal nations in Canaan that the people were going to inhabit the promised land of. What did it say in Noah's time, in Genesis 6, that the whole world was what? Evil and every thought was corrupt and evil. So what we have here is God saying because of these detestable practices, because of their evil deeds, because of all of this bad and horrible stuff, that I've allowed to go on for so long, I'm now allowing you to come into the land, but I'm gonna drive them out. I'm gonna drive them out ahead of you. But listen to verse 13. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. What does it mean to be blameless? Without blame. What is blame? Oh, come on, we did this as kids. It's not my fault, it's his fault. Right? We cast blame. Why do we cast blame? Because something bad or wrong has happened. But we are to be blameless. Nobody could cast blame against us because there's nothing to blame us for because we are holy and good and righteous. But Brandon, I'm not perfect. No, you're not. But this is a lie of the enemy that has crept into the church today to make us think we're good enough in and of our own strength and our own power and our own authority to have earned the right to stand before God. But there is no one good but the Father. And to come into the presence of God means you have to be on your face in such stark humility in contrast to the Holy One who created you. But I see too many arrogant Christians, pompous Christians, who walk around 
disregarding the holiness and the awesomeness of God, that they make a mockery of God with the way they live their lives, the way they talk about him. And they've become just as detestable to the nostrils of God. The stench is so horrifying that they seem like those in the outside world who really don't care. Verse 14, the nations you are about to displace, they consult sorcerers and fortune tellers, but the Lord your God forbids you to do such things. The famed 19th century evangelist and pastor D.L. Moody once said, a holy life will make the deepest impression. And then he goes on to say, lighthouses blow no horns, they just shine. See, God knew the Israelites would be tempted to leave him and follow other pagan practices when they came into the land. He knew how impressionable they were and how susceptible they were to outside influences. How many times did they rebel against him in the wilderness? Read the book of Numbers and you can get an idea about how insufferable they were. And lest we think we're any different, how insufferable are we who proclaim Christ with our mouth in our churches today? but live lives that are contrary to his will and his ways. And so our key point this morning is this, true kindness isn't the absence of correction or instruction, it's the presence of holiness. True kindness isn't the absence of correction or instruction, it's the presence of all holiness. And so what does it mean to be holy as God is holy? I wanna look at three different aspects of holiness today how we are called as believers in Christ to be set apart. And that word holy, if you really break it down into its most fundamental definition, means to be set apart. That's what the word means. Holy means to be set apart. Are you set apart? Do you look or are you perceived as being set apart from the rest of the world around you? Now, that doesn't mean you have to go around and show off, but in the way you normally live your life, can people tell there's something different about you? And I'm not just saying different, weird. I spoke at a conference last weekend for our state offices uh, and our state ministries on the kingdom of God and the Sermon on the Mount. And I mentioned in that conference that oftentimes the church and believers in Christ in our day and age should have a beautiful aroma, but oftentimes we don't. So instead of, picture this, to be salt and light means to be attractive, okay? Now, light illuminates and salt inflavorates. Just trying to come up with a rhyming word, but you catch what I'm talking about. But both of the two, two of the things, so what does light and salt do? It enhances, but it does something else. Purifies. 
Salt. I love country ham. You guys don't have it in Western PA. Do you even know what that is? So country ham is where they take a big old ham hock and they bury it in a box of salt, cure it with salt until all the bacteria is gone. So it's a cured piece of ham that's been set in salt for long enough that it's dried out all the moisture components and it's just this salty piece of meat. It is a southern delicacy. You don't have to refrigerate it because it's been cured in salt. No bacteria can live in it. That's what we are called to be, flavorful and purifying. But light does the same thing. We are called to be illuminating and purifying to our environment. What does holiness do? To be set apart, it brings purity into a situation. And so believers in Christ are called to be a fragrant aroma of God wherever we go. Have you ever stepped into a bakery in the early morning where they've just been finished baking the breads and stuff for the day? Do you know what I, you're mouthwatering yet? Do you do, do you, the fresh baked bread and it just fills the air? That's how we're supposed to be to the world around us. But sadly, the church in many ways in our culture has so compromised the truth and its values that the smell that people get when we pass by is like that bloated deer on the side of the road in the middle of summer <laughs> that's swollen up so big you know if anything hits it, just a pebble. If you've got a gag reflex, I apologize. Or somebody hit a skunk, and you know you're, you're seeing it, and you're getting ready to pass it by, and you take a big, deep breath, and you try to hold it as long as you can when you pass by it. See, we are a peculiar people. <laughs> yes, we are. But we are not to be a putrid people. The people of the world will not like us because they've grown accustomed to putridness. And so when they smell flavor and aroma that is good, sometimes they reject it, but not all people do. We are not to reflect the smells of the world, but to reflect the smells of heaven, the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to be holy as God is holy? Holiness first starts with surrender. Surrender. We say this word in our churches, but I don't think we really know what it means. When you think of surrender, what images are conjured in your mind? Thank you. And that's exactly where I was going. You're good. Hank, you get an A today. It's a picture of a stick with a white flag on it. Right? I surrender. It's like being on a battlefield. You are fighting what you think is the enemy only to realize at least in this spiritual realm that we've been fighting against God this whole time. And so we say we give up. But see, we don't give up the fight for life. We give up our fight against God. And giving up our fight against God actually helps us to gain true life in return. And it's about full surrender. Have you ever seen a partial surrender? I've seen it in the church. 
And some of you who are in ministry or evangelists, you've probably seen that. People that are willing to give up this much or this much. But the interesting thing that I read and I understand about Scripture is we have to give up everything. Now, lest, again, lest you think that I'm being crazy here, I'm not saying give up on your marriage, give up on your children. That's not what I'm saying. Only the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy would cause you to believe that. What I'm saying you have to do is to give up everything to God. Have you given your marriage up to God when it's at its most hopeless situation? And how long did you give it up before you took it back into your own hands? Have you given up your child to God or your children? You're trying to make a way for them. You're trying to blaze a trail for them, but they're rebelling against you. They're kicking at the, here's a biblical term, kicking at the goads. What are those? Different sermon for a different time. Just suffice it to say, goads are not great. I mean, what do you hold near and dear to you? What have you not surrendered? Because if there's anything in your life that you haven't said to God, this is yours, you can have it. This is yours, you can have it. Is it your anger? Is it your lack of forgiveness? Is it bitterness or resentfulness because of something that happened to you years ago or just recently? Is it your addiction to pornography, to drugs, alcohol? Maybe it's a workaholism kind of thing that you feel like you're only worth as much as you can provide. And so you, the more you work and the more you do determines your worth. And so you've now given yourself over to the God of workaholism. What haven't you surrendered to God? What areas of your life have you held locked away? You see, God's a gentleman. He won't bust down doors of our lives that we don't welcome him into. Have you let him into the foyer? You've surrendered that much? You see, God desires the whole house. It's all or nothing. He desires the closets that we won't even let our loved ones into. The lock boxes under our beds. He desires all of us. And in God's economy, it is everything. We're told in Romans chapter 12, we are to be living sacrifices. Offerings acceptable to God. But the sad reality is in our culture and in our day and age, we feel that giving God only part of ourselves is enough. Now, we would never say that. We say, yeah, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus, sure. I go to church on Sundays. Well, Brandon, I can't think about God all the time. I've got to work. I've got a family. I've got all these activities and things to do. You see, if that's where your mindset is, you miss the whole point altogether. It's not about thinking about God. It's about being with God and knowing God is with you. It's about 
it's behind that wall there. I haven't moved it yet. But knowing, growing, and going. See, this idea of knowing God intimately, can I tell you what that really means? In every aspect of your life, he desires for you to know him as he knows you. My wife and I started a journey of getting to know each other 25 years ago when we first met. Do you know we're still getting to know each other 25 years later, even after marriage and all that? It's a journey. It's a walk. It's a desire that everything that I am and everything that I do is connected to who she is and who God created her to be. When we view our relationship with God like that, then everything I am and everything I do is connected to who he is and who he desires for me to become in him. So when I go about doing whatever, whether it's work or parenting, or I'm at the soccer field or at the grocery store, or I'm driving from point A to point B, my awareness of who God is is always at the forefront of my mind. Do you know why Paul can, says, Paul can say, continually be in prayer or pray always and at all times? It's not because he thought we could practically always be on our knees. It's because we have a God awareness to where we are in communion with him in the lives we live. When I wake to the point that I lay my head on the pillow at night is a constant God awareness and not some new agey weird crap, but the real deal about knowing him the way he knows me and me constantly pressing in, especially in the areas I don't understand when things aren't going my way, when I'm hitting the rough points of life that are knocking me for a loop, and I'm begging God for answers, and I'm saying, where are you amidst, in the midst of this? And I don't hear the sound of his voice or feel the emotions of his presence. It's still knowing that I know that I know that he is good and he is holy and that he is trustworthy. It's like when Jesus was traveling and crowds had begun to follow him in John chapter 6. It's one of the longest chapters in John. <clears throat> and, and the crowds are they're like, what can he do next? He's like a circus sideshow. Seriously. He's been feeding thousands by a little bit. He's been doing some amazing things. Raising the dead, healing the sick, causing the blind to see, the deaf to hear. And people are following. And is always characteristic of, Jesus, characteristic of Jesus 
It's in essence, in this next act, he asks the question, are you following me for what I can do for you, or are you following me for me? That's a question that could be asked today. And so he says these words. As the crowds are following, they're moving from one place to the next, he stops and he says, hey, listen up, everybody. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. I'm guessing just as much as it's really quiet in here right now, you could hear a pin drop. And then I'm guessing after a few seconds of quietness and silence, there's some murmuring that starts to happen through the crowd. And it's probably something like this. That's weird. Um, we're Jews. We, we don't eat people. I mean, maybe the pagan nations do, but we're not cannibals. That's, no, that, I didn't sign up for this. And group by group, person by person, it says they all walked away. And there are the 12 disciples left with Jesus do you know what he does? He turns and looks at them and he said, you guys going to leave too? And Peter, pipes up and he says, to whom shall we go? That have the words of life. They've given up everything to follow him. They've left families and jobs and They've sacrificed, they've surrendered everything to follow Jesus. And he's shown to actually have the words of life. Whom else has the words of life but you? Whom else would we follow but you? And so from thousands to 12, great church growth model. Jesus wasn't about bells, whistles, lights, the right kind of music. He was about the right kind of worship. And I'm not talking contemporary versus traditional. I'm talking about spirit and truth. And unless we worship him truly like that, we can have no part of him. I'm broken today. I don't know if you could tell. I'm not my jovial, charismatic, woohoo funny self, but the reality is I'm broken. You know why I'm broken today? It's probably because I'm coming off a week of being sick and I'm just hyper-emotional. But I'm tired. And the world around us is raging, isn't it? Has anything changed, though, since the time of Christ? Has, was the world raging when Christ was on the earth? Was the enemy alive and seeking to devour whomever he could? God desires more than our paltry Sunday worship. He desires us in every aspect of our life. It is complete and utter surrender that he desires. God desires separation. Holiness is separation. 
Most of us have heard the saying, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's true. Believers in Christ are to be in the world, but not of the world. Why? Because when you become a believer in Christ, you forfeit your citizenry to the world, and you become a citizen of God. You, you don't have dual citizenship in regard to God. Do you understand that? When you become a believer in Christ, you've in essence said, I'm leaving my citizenship of the world behind, and I'm becoming a citizen of God's kingdom. But what does it mean to be a citizen of God's kingdom? When a person surrenders their life to Christ through faith and belief, they begin a journey. And the journey they begin is eternal life in Christ. And that journey consists of a new birth, a new life, and a new citizenship. Because the person has become a new creation, they necessarily see the world for what it is. It's actually upside down. If you don't see the world in which you currently live as upside down, then you haven't gotten the right perspective. A citizen of God who is a believer in Christ and who has had a radical change in belief and a shift in worldviews has come to see there's something wrong with the world. And the reality is we weren't created for this type of world. And so we are to be separate, set apart. This is what Peter means in his letter in the New Testament. You are to be holy as God is holy. Do you know what that means? It means you are to be set apart as your Father in heaven is set apart. He is not of the world. Though he created all of it, it has become corrupted by sin and death. And because of that corruption, it no longer reflects the essence of perfection the way he designed it to. It has become corrupted. And so you now, as believers in Christ, have become new creations, Paul says in Corinthians. The old is gone, the new has come. And when you have the citizenship of heaven on you, you may feel like you're upside down, but the reality is you see the world through a clear lens, and that lens tells you that the world is upside down. You used to live in a world of smoke and mirrors when you weren't a believer in Christ, but when you come to Christ, you see the world for what it is. And it should break your heart. Yes, there should, should, should be some anger against sin and death, but more than that, it should break your heart because it breaks God's heart. And to be set apart doesn't mean we become snobbish it doesn't mean we become arrogant about the role we play within the world, as I see many Christians do in some churches who strut around flinging condemnation and hellfire at everybody else. Judge not, lest you be judged. To be separate doesn't mean to carry a chip on our shoulders. Rather, to be separate requires our humility. It requires our mercy. It requires us to speak the truth in love, to call out evil when we see it, but always be willing to have an open hand to help somebody out of a pit. To 
talked about witchcraft, sorcery, those kind of things, stuff that we see in movies. Just in case you don't believe witchcraft, mediums, psychics, and those kind of things aren't a prevalent issue in our society today. I looked up some headlines from the recent past. Here's one of the headlines. Satanic Temple opens abortion clinic in New Mexico. This was within the past year or two. Do you know why they opened an abortion clinic? Because they've now driven in through the courts or to the courts that it is a part of their religion to sacrifice babies. No, they don't say it in so many words, but in the abortion ritual, and you, you may get really angry with me, don't shoot the messenger, this is public news, but in their abortion ritual, in the clinic, there is a person in there helping them to recant satanic tenets while the abortion is going on. You could turn a blind eye and a blind ear to this stuff, but the reality is it's happening in our nation and not in some third world country with a medicine man. What about the golden horned statue on top of the New York courthouse? This golden statue that stands beside, beside Moses and Zoroaster in these stoned marble edifices, there's this gold statue. I don't know if they've taken her down yet. But she almost looks like a satanic Baphomet kind of thing. And a Baphomet is a horned goat-like creature, except this is a woman with squiggly-looking arms and Medusa-like hair that's curled up into horns, standing over one of the highest courts in New York City. Another one, Satanic Temple unveils Baphomet statue at Arkansas Capitol. And it's not just about those kind of things. Listen to this one. See, uh, psychics report a boom since coronavirus as the bereaved seek solace in spiritualism. I want to get in contact with my loved one who's died. So if I go to a psychic, maybe they can conjure the dead and bring back this one so I can just communicate with them. America's belief in psychic and paranormal phenomena is up over the last decade. Belief in psychic healing and extrasensory perception topped the list. And I know probably some of you may even be scoffing at me right now for even bringing this up. Brandon, we're a civilized church. Do you know downtown Butler holds... A witch's day out. Oh, it's just for fun. But then you go down there and there's crystals and there's incantations and tarot cards. And if I'm stepping on toes, I'm stepping on toes. The reality is, and I'm not, I'm not an old fuddy-duddy. My kids may tell you I am, but as they've grown up and are now in their adulthood age, they realize, Dad, you're not as strict as some of our friends' parents are. 
here's the truth. When you skirt or skate too close to an edge, when you play with fire, it is human, sinful nature that tries to get us to get so close to the edge of not doing something bad that we get so close to doing it, but we really haven't done it. And so then we can justify, well, we didn't really do it. I mean, let's see how close I could get to it. We're masters at this. And we get deceived or we've deceived ourselves into believing that we can get close to an edge without going over and be okay when all reality is getting close to the edge is the problem. What's motivating you or driving you to get anywhere near that edge? It's not God. Christians do believe in the spiritual world. We do believe what the Bible calls spiritual warfare. We do believe that we are in a battle of good and evil in this world, but that God will and already has through Christ conquered sin and death. We do believe in good and evil. We believe in principalities, powers, and demonic rulers of this world. But we don't believe that they are of equal authority and power as God is. What we do believe is that in Christ, we are more than conquerors. And that God, through Christ, who conquered sin and death on the cross, when we believe in him and when Christ comes into us and the power of Holy Spirit infuses us, that we then have the authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to raise the dead. Jesus says, with the things you've seen me do, you will do even greater things than these. But we don't believe it. A couple of us do, but we don't believe it. This isn't the kind of message we wanted to hear today, Brandon. We want to hear something fun and exciting, something encouraging or convicting in, in the way that we want to be convicted and The reason that I don't believe we see miracles in great supply in many of our churches today is, is the same reason, I told this to my class this morning, is the same reason that Jesus was unable to do miracles in his hometown of Nazareth. You want to know what that is? Unbelief. Oh, we say we believe, but we don't. Not really. We say we believe that God can heal and that he can do this and he can do that because we read about it or hear about it in the Bible, but we don't really believe. And no, God doesn't always heal or do things in the way we expect and or desire him to or the way that we pray for him to do. But I think God doesn't do a whole lot more around us because we don't believe anyway.
We've negated our responsibility as the body of Christ to actually hold the banner of Christ high and to believe that what he told us was the truth was actually the truth by living it out on our daily, in our daily lives. The last one is holiness is steady. Ray Edmond in his book, the found, uh, They Found the Secret, writes, <coughs> excuse me, Samuel Bringle was a worker in the Salvation Army in Boston many, many, many years ago. And as he passed by a saloon, we don't use those terms anymore, so you know it's an old story when you hear the word saloon. When he passed by a saloon, some men who knew who he was threw a brick at him and hit him in the head. Their aim was so good that Brinkle nearly died. As it was, he spent 18 months in recovery, many of those months in the hospital. And during that time, he wrote a little book entitled, Helps to Holiness. Thousands of copies were published back then. After he was able to begin preaching again, people would often thank him for the little book that he had wrote. And he would respond by saying, if there had been no little brick, there would be no little book. And his wife ended up saving the brick that he was hit in the head with. And she had inscribed on it Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, which reads, You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. When bad things happen to you, when difficulty happens, instead of giving up, it's our call to be steady, to hold the line, to press in, to press deeper, to not give up the ship. Because the ship we're riding in Christ will never sink. A life of holiness is a life that is determined and steady. It is a life of one that is undeterred by the problems and difficulties that life throws at it. The person ultimately knows and understands the passage of James that says, when troubles come your way, consider it pure joy. The steady life of holiness is not easy. It requires resolve and stick It's not for the faint of heart or those that easily give up when the going gets tough. Steadiness, rather, comes to the one who, Jesus says, has learned to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the one who truly has tested and known that to seek God with all your heart is to truly find him because he doesn't hide from us if we're truly seeking who he is. 19th century Scottish theologian John Brown wrote, holiness does not consist in mystic speculations, in enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities. It consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. I'm going to call our worship team to close this out today. And I guess the question I have is are you living life as a holy citizen of the kingdom of God?
again, as one who is set apart from the world. And it's not so much as people seeing you as different, but knowing that you're different. Not everybody that passes by you on a daily basis is going to know anything different about you. But what about those you have opportunity to interact with? Those people in your life that know the real you. Again, you say, Brandon, I'm not perfect. No, you're not. But you are to be set apart. You are to be making strides at least in a direction of holiness. You are to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Your heart should be breaking for the things that break God's heart. What does your heart break for? And if you're saying to me, Brandon, I'm too tired to think, or my heart to break for anyone or anything, then where do you find rest? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. See, the true source of holiness is not you and what you can muster in and of your own strength. It's about a full surrender to God through Jesus Christ, a willingness to let the Holy Spirit fill you to overflowing and to be poured out as a drink offering for God in every aspect of your life. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. In, re in repentance, we learn what it means to be truly surrendered to God. Some of you are playing this religious game. I never heard of this term until I moved to Western Pennsylvania. Spirit of religion. Have you ever heard of that before? You know what that is? It is a malevolent force that causes us to feel comfort in the fact that we belong to a church or we grew up in a church or that we are a... Do you know what the sign at the top of the hill before you go down North Main says? What are we? A worshiping... A worshiping but it never says who or what. I think it's implied and... If we truly were a worshiping community, would Butler look different? I mean, truly a God-worshiping community. I noticed that when I first moved here, and it's been a sign that's been very embarrassing to me since I've lived here for 10, going on 11 years. Because I do believe we are a worshiping community, and we're worshiping the spirit of religion rather than the God of all creation. We have a church on every street corner, but what difference does it make just in our general location? Not a dang bit of difference. And why is that? Because we aren't fully sold out. We like to play church and do church just as much as our kids like to play house and Barbie and all of that other stuff. We don't really want to 
put ourselves out there and go all in because it's too risky. But the dividends are eternal. Father, I don't know where this message landed today. There may be people that hate me right now, but <laughs> so be it. No more playing games, God. We love you. No more playing the religious game of doing church. God, we need to learn what it means to be the church, to go back and do the first things over again. God, rend the heavens and pour out your Holy Spirit upon these people in this place today. Drive us to our knees in confession and repentance for all the ways and areas of life that we've never surrendered to you. forgive us as a church in this community for not holding high the standard of Christ, the banner of Christ, not as a stick to beat people over the head, but God as a sweet aroma of love and mercy and truth. Forgive us where we failed to be salt and light. Forgive us where we've been limited based on our own resources and strength and power, knowing that you are a limitless God with limitless resources and power. And Lord, I'm asking today for you to break our hearts. Pull the scales from our eyes. Not only help us to see you for who you are, but to see those around us as beautiful creations created in your image in need of a Savior, in need of deliverance, in need of hope. But let it start with us. If there's anything in between you and I, God, I ask your forgiveness. If there's anything between this church and you that's inhibiting your Holy Spirit, forgive us, God. Help us to remove it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.